Welcome to Soupy Art Radio. We have the pleasure of being joined this morning with Ian Flockhart. Or good afternoon morning. or good evening, Cap- wherever you are in the Captain world. Captain Ian Flockhart. He's worked good hard morning. for that title. He, he I did. Miss it. Capitan. Anyhow, um, lovely to have you here today. As always. As always. You have become our font of knowledge. I have to tell you, I have learned a lot in our chats over the past couple of weeks. And this morning we are, um, we're going to, well, I'm going to be learning something more because we're going to be talking about contracts. Yes, we are. Mm. Do you, the, the amount of captains that I bump into who are in that kind of nasty stage of fighting for getting paid because they haven't bothered doing a contract and they get on a boat and they go, oh, yeah, well, the captain said he'll do it in a week and they just don't get around to it. Yeah, it's, it happens a lot. And I, I'm in that same situation. I'm, I'm in the middle of a two and a half year legal battle. Um, I did have a contract, but there's a there's a lot of complexities in my own case. And I'm, I'm going to mention one of them in particular later on because uh, it might help other people prevent from ending up in the situation that, um, that I'm currently in. First thing I'd like to say, a little bit of a disclaimer, I'm clearly not a lawyer and anything that I'm saying is basically just based on general advice based on you know many years of personal experience and um it it is very sensible if ever you feel the need for legal advice to go and contact a a competent and experienced lawyer who specializes and this is to be noted in the specific aspect of law that you're you're concerned about and importantly very relevant to yachts in the relevant jurisdiction in the relevant jurisdiction jurisdiction as in the difference between a super yacht versus a yacht, well, or where you well, are in the world? No, no, no. The, the the legal jurisdiction, as in where the where the which court is going to be dealing with it. We'll get onto that a bit later because you know I've got a scenario where that sort of looks at jurisdictions and it's very very important. But we'll we'll, we'll come onto that. So where to begin? I mean, uh, contracts in any industry are vitally important and checking you dot your I's and cross your T's are um, an important part of it. I presume there is a a standard contract that most people see and they skim through when starting a job. I I think that does happen. Um, I I think what we ought to do is let's first look at what contract is. Um, I think that's quite important in itself. Um, A a contract is a written or spoken, be cautious of that, um, agreement between two or more parties that is intended to be enforceable by law. That's a very it's a very important point because um, you know if you're going to make an agreement, it, it it has to be something that you understand can be enforced in law if if necessary. So they exist to set out terms to ensure that each party's obligations and responsibilities are clearly understood. Um, there's four main sections to a contract certainly under the uk jurisdictions um and this is this is any kind of contract not necessarily just an employment contract but they're applicable anyway the first is that there must be an offer there must then be acceptance there must be consideration which usually comes in the form of financial consideration but not always and there must be intent 
that means that the the parties making the agreement must actually have genuine intent to carry out their respective parts of the agreement. Uh, again, we'll come to that later because that's, that's that's quite important as well. That um, crew members and captains must also remember that they have a responsibility to fulfil their side of whatever agreement is is entered into. So that's that's very basically what a contract is the purpose of a contract um, we have in the maritime world over the last few years MLC SEAs seafarers employment agreements which we'll, we'll go on to, to talk about um, in terms of the importance of a contract I'm sure we've all personally experienced or heard stories of the captains of crews that end up chasing employers money etc Sorry about that. We're just pausing, Ian, for one moment. Um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, this, uh, there was a slight pause. Please continue. Okay, all right. Um, one of the one of the most common things to consider why it is so important to to have a contract is that yacht owners frequently hide behind quite complex ownership structures. Um, one of the purposes of that is to min- minimize their own exposure to litigation. So, for example, in, in the event of a wages dispute, um, you're always you're almost always taking on a separate corporate entity rather than the actual owner of the yacht. Uh, if you find yourself in a situation like that, it's you'll often find that that corporate entity is little more than a you know a brass plaque on the wall of a, a wooden hut with a corrugated iron roof somewhere in a remote South Pacific island. <laughs> uh, and more importantly, that that entity may well not have any tangible assets from which you can recover any claim against them. Um, so that's that's an important thing to so- to bear in mind as well. Double check who you're signing the contract actually with. It, yeah, That's we'll, difficult we'll, though. We'll, we'll, we'll get into this when we. I mean, with, there's, you know, this is jurisdiction is important, but you know, oft times, particularly when the boats get larger, you know, you will you will be employed by some completely separate entity, uh, and that may not even be the the owner of the vessel at all. Um, by that I mean the beneficial owner or the you know the legal owner of the ves- the vessel. It could be a it could be a, a company that's set up. Yeah, specifically Cayman Islands Holding Company. And they're very often, you know, yes, they exist as legal entities, but they're very often, you know, virtually have no assets whatsoever. They're there simply to, you know, to perform a to perform a function. So is there any way you can kind of uh, when you're looking at it, you can ask who am I um, who am I actually signing with? Well, that will be that, that that will be clear once you get a contract put in front of you, because the the um, the name of the employer must be in a seafarer's employment agreement. But also, and this is quite important, if the if the ship is not owned, um, sorry, if you are not being employed by the ship owner. Now, by that, we, we, we mean, in most cases, that will be the entity that owns the ship, not the actual beneficial owner. Then the employer is legally obliged to 
enter into the seafarers agreement the name and address of the actual ship owner which will be of the actual, per- the... Of the actual person or the, the well, company it, that owns the, the boat it'll be whoever owns the vessel and in the vast majority of cases that is not a private individual it is some kind of corporate entity so whoever or whatever owns the boat yeah it will be you know whoever in the terms of a, of a legal entity you know some company that set up that so that that information must be in a in an SEA if it's not actually you know if you're not employed by the ship owner directly so if you're employed by a company that's set up you know just to manage payroll etc then that information has to be in the SEA would, would you, you, it, sorry would it be safe to assume then that the a- average seafarer um, who's taking a job on a boat who's presented with a contract if you were to investigate who you're actually signing the contract with, what that entity is, um, you, you could be looking at a, a qu- quite a, an in-depth search in, in trying to find where that company is. Does it have assets? I mean, the due diligence could be, yeah, um, could be. would be a, a job in itself, I would imagine. Yeah, and, and frequently they they do not have significant assets. Hmm. Um, it, dep- it depends on you know how big an operation it is, how you know how smoothly they operate, etc. But frequently they do not have a great deal of assets behind them, and that's that's very often quite deliberate. So, for example, um, I could own a boat, and I might own it under ABC Limited, and that's the owner of the boat. However, I may have a separate company that set up the Channel Islands or Guernsey or whatever. And its only function is as the employer, and yes, it, yeah. that entity necessarily has no assets. It doesn't own the boat as such, so it doesn't have the boat as an asset. Yeah. It's purely an off-the-shelf company, and its only function is as a vehicle to employ this, the, the crew of the yacht. Yeah, and I can attest to that through bitter experience. I was getting that yep. feeling. Uh, so that can be the case. So that's something to be cautious of. But it is kind of difficult to, you can do to about protect that, yourself. There? There's very little you can do about it. There's there's very little you can do about You're it. You're signing this, on this good is, faith. This is one of the reasons why the you know the MLC introduced the the seafarers employment agreement. Uh, it would probably be sensible if we if we don't go any further without talking about that because it really is quite um, really is quite important. Um, just a bit of a bit of sort of general background knowledge there crew members working on board vessel are governed by whatever the the contract of employment they have that's been agreed and by in certain circumstances wider applicable law the law of the yachts flag state technically regulates employment on board but local port states can also have an influence on that if you've got say for example if you've got an aggrieved crew member that's seeking some kind of redress redress another thing that happened with the the SCAs that was that was a little bit unusual was captains never used to be signed on to the old-fashioned crew agreements because they were sort of deemed to be somewhere in limbo between the employer and the crew. Um, but captains now should also have seafarers employment agreements as well, which is probably a good thing for the captains. 
Well, what what do they have before? Just a handshake? Well, no, you would have, you would have a, well, in some cases, yes. <laughs> um, but you would, you know, you would negotiate a contract directly with the employer. But, you know, the captains were not signed on to the crew agreement uh, previously because it's a historical thing. It goes way back to when captains were deemed to be kind of in cahoots with the ship owners themselves. Like the owners and were rep. therefore not, yeah, they were therefore sort of not impartial. And that's, I mean, it goes back, you know, 300 years or whatever. So the old trading um, days when the, the captain would me, crew exactly, up a yeah. ship and uh, exactly okay. and he would be you know he would not be considered to be impartial he would be you know he was basically considered to be on the side of the owner okay another thing that's important to remember is that the MLC is not in itself per se a statement of law right what it is it's a set of rules which the countries that are party to the MLC, the ratifying countries, agreed to incorporate within their own system of laws. Okay, so you must turn to the specific flag state laws to actually deal with any instances that come up as a result of this. So the MLC in itself is merely a set of rules that a, a group of countries that have ratified the agreement have, have agreed to incorporate into their own sort of statutes. But they're not necessarily the same throughout the world. No, because each each flag state has the you know has the the privilege of um, you know, making its own things as long as they're you know generally compliant with uh, presuming it is you know ratified with the MLC that it's in general compliance with uh, you know the philosophy of of what's contained within the MLC. Could but I, yes, sorry, Ian. Could, could I ask you, just for clarification? We we do obviously we do contracts. We enter into contractual agreements with people who advertise or work with us commercially, and and throughout my life, I'm no stranger to contracts. Typically in a contract, as you, you alluded to earlier on, typically in a contract, you, you've got your different clauses and setting out you know, the detail of it. But usually there's, a, there's a, a, a clause in there as to the jurisdiction that that contract falls under. So if there's, um, if there's litigation or if there's a problem with the contract, um, we predefined the jurisdiction, be it England, Luxembourg or whatever. In the situation with the boat, you're saying the flag state weighs heavily on it. So, in the contract in the SEA, do you would you typically have a clause that th this contract is subject to British law or Cayman Islands law or Hong Kong law? And if so, how does that fare with the flag state of the boat? Are, are there sort of mutual exclusivity? Does one take legal precedence over another? And I do appreciate you're not, not a lawyer, so. Don't mean to put you on the spot with that, but does that make does my question make sense? It does. I mean, you can okay if we can jump forward to a bit that I was going to come to a bit further on. Okay. I've been I've been in a situation before, um, and these the the names of the countries here are purely just made up just yeah. for the purpose of discussion. But you could, for example, right? Let's say you're on a um, all the crew are on vessel of a flag that's um, registered in St Vincent. When that vessel is in international waters, they are standing in St Vincent no matter where it is. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're also standing in St. Vincent, no matter whether it's within side territorial waters of another state as well. So if you've got a St. Vincent registered vessel and it's in the UAE, okay, depending on what the issue is, you are potentially subject to the law of one or other or both of those states. 
Okay, you're always in St. Vincent so long as you're on the vessel. But if let's say, for example, a crime is committed and you're inside the territorial waters, a 12 mile limit of the UAE. Right. Mm -hmm. Then you've got them to have to deal with as well. Right. Now, to further complicate matters, you may have this vessel that's registered in St. Vincent. Owning company may be registered in the Marshall Islands. Okay, Mm -hmm. your employment contract, maybe you're working for a Turkish owner could be under Turkish law. Wow. And you're it in can get UAE. very complicated. Back to why you need a good maritime lawyer if you have a problem. You're Vincent and the UAE at the same time. Yeah? It, it can become very complicated on ships. And this is why, you know, I stressed at the beginning, you know, if ever a captain or a crew member, you know, really doesn't know what to do, they, they really need to get in touch with a, a competent lawyer that is familiar with whichever jurisdiction may be involved now the, say for example something like that um you know you may you may contact a lawyer that's familiar with the the flag state jurisdiction but you are let it, let's if it's an employment issue you may also need to be dealing with someone who's familiar with turkish jurisdiction because that's where your your contract is if it's a criminal thing then you also need to be talking to a lawyer who is familiar with uae jurisdiction right. okay so you may need more than one lawyer. You may need you more may than need one, one salary as well. You, you, may, you, be may one, you may need more than one lawyer. Yeah, I mean that's just a you know a very hypothetical and complex yeah. situation. But but you know I just did it to illustrate that it can be complex depending on the nature of the issue that requires legal attention. Hmm. Yeah, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, just another, another couple of points, if we can just go back to SEAs again. Um, can I uh, show yeah, my ignorance? Sure. SEA stands for? Seafarer's Employment, Employment Agreement. Okay. Okay. Now, SEAs have to be approved by the flag state. Now, that means approved in a general term. The, the MCA, for example, have got a model format of a Seafarer's Employment Agreement. And every single person that works on a boat should get online and download this and familiarize themselves with it because that will be because because the, the, you know, the UK authorities have had such great influence in the world in many respects and especially in yachting still uh, under the whole Red Ensign group. Uh, the, you know, what was laid down, what is laid down by the MCA is followed very closely by a lot of a lot of other jurisdictions. So if crew are familiar with the contents of the model SEA published by the MCA, then when they see something that deviates from that significantly, they will at least be aware of that. Now, employers are permitted to provide what's referred to as additional provisions to a seafarer's employee agreement. However, the flag state, or MCA specifically, will not per se review every employer's specific additional provisions that they make. However, any additional provisions that an employer wishes to make to an SCA must not conflict with, talking UK jurisdiction here again, UK general shipping regulations or any other international instruments that have been ratified by the UK. Okay, so if if your crew member is familiar with what the MCA have published as a standard template, if you like, if they're then presented with something that varies considerably from that, 
then they, they're at least going to be aware of that and they may be able to ask questions relating to these additional provisions that their employer are putting in if there's you know if there's a if there's a major deviation from what the the MCA have deemed as a standard so know basically what the basic template is like so you exactly. can notice the differences yeah. when you, you get your own. You can go online, online, you can download it, you can see what, you know, the MCA have approved as the standard SEA. And if you see something that varies significantly or in any worrying way from that, then you need to start asking some questions. Or, or something that conflicts with the basic MCA or... or well, exactly. We'll say the, the additional provisions, you know, mm. it says clearly they must not conflict with UK general shipping regulations or any other international instrument that has been ratified by the UK. So crew are not allowed to sleep. Exactly. Yeah. All things. All things. <laughs> which, uh, which is okay. so true, actually, in some ways. Another, another very important thing that has been um, been entered into the sort of the rules surrounding the SEA, uh, the number of people I've met in my life that just, you know, sign a contract without reading it is, is just beyond belief. Um, it states very clearly there's a there's a, a marine guidance no um, MGN four seven seven that covers SEAs and again everybody should really download and read that it's only a few pages long and it's critically important because it all relates to your employment contract but um, you must be given the opportunity to review and seek advice on the contract that you've been given and you must um, both the employee and the employer ship owner must um, sign the document to say that you have been given the opportunity to seek advice um, and that you've explained and you've received an explanation of your rights and responsibility under the agreement and that the agreement is entered into freely. So that is, you know, you're, you're legally bound to give the employee the opportunity to properly review the document. Um, and if they're not sure about anything to seek further advice wherever they choose to do so before they actually sign the document how often do you think that actually happens um i don't know but i mean you know i i, I will sit and read you know every bit of small print on anything i'm ever asked to sign it doesn't matter how long it takes i will sit and read the entire thing and really really that is what people should do, they should do i, I kind of want to ask do you read manuals as well when you get something um, new yeah, I generally don't because the, <laughs> no. the, these days products are so intuitive that you really shouldn't yeah. have to read the manual. You know, we can design things yeah. so well now. And if, well, if they are well designed, you shouldn't even need a manual because it should be entirely intuitive. Well, okay. I, think, yeah. I think some of it is also maturity because if you look at millennials um, and, and the, the younger crew, we are in a world where people enter into contracts several times a day without even the only do is click i agree yep. the amount of you know be it an app or be it um, apple or google or facebook nobody reads those contracts and yep. there's a mental conditioning there where people just accept oh there's a contract where do i sign yeah yeah. Um, well, we've got. Um, I'm just let's be, be cautious of. Sorry, mindful of this. I've actually got a sort of bullet point list that I want to run down before we finish the Definitely. section. So if we leave, so, no, if we're going to leave ten minutes toward the end just to to go over that. Um, mm -hmm. But there are a number of things mentioned there. The, the the first one of the things on that list is any savvy employer is going to be organised and they are going to send you 
a copy of the contract that they expect you to sign before you come to join the vessel, before they book a flight for you. Why would they waste money on a flight if you haven't even agreed to come and join the vessel yet, if you haven't seen the contract? Now, if an employer's not doing that, alarm bells should be ringing, okay? You should have sight of your proposed contract before they buy you before a ticket you pack to go your to bags. The, before you pack your bags. Okay, and that gives you the opportunity to do your own due diligence, go over it, go seek some professional advice if you need to, to have a better understanding of what's contained therein. And if you're not happy with that document, then don't sign it. Because it's still, it's not going to hold up when you get there. (laughs) Exactly. You're just, you're committing to something that you're not happy with. Yep. And if, if, um, and then, you know, if the. If the organization that's going to employ you isn't organized enough to have this done in advance and ready for you before you get, oh, yeah, it'll all be all right when you get to the boat. Mm, again, alarm bells should be ringing. And I think possibly to add to that, particularly for young crew, is it's OK to come back and say, would you mind clarifying this point and this point in my contract before I Absolutely. sign it? Because for me, it doesn't seem clear do you mean this or do you mean that and make sure and get black that clarification and white in writing get get that clarification in writing not just a verbal yet not just you, verbal. you got yeah. them okay yeah this i mean the, the just at the very beginning i mentioned in the definition of a contract a contract can be verbal but um let me tell you you're going to have a tremendous <laughs> amount of difficulty defending that in a courtroom uh, um my technically my dad used to say it's worth the paper it's written on Absolutely. And look, you might work for someone for three years and they paid you into a bank account for three years, um, but that isn't going to help you tremendously when you come to negotiate um, in a courtroom something to do with, say, for example, different clauses of your contract. Okay. The very fact that an employer has, you know, paid for a ticket to you and brought you onto a boat and you've, you know, they've paid you for three months even, right, that, that you know, there's an implication there that you have been employed. And that's fine. And so long as nothing goes wrong. But yes. as soon as things start to go wrong, then you're going to find yourself in a in a very tenuous situation uh, that, you, you know, you're not going to be able to to prove beyond reasonable doubt that, you know, your contract said you would get, a, you know, a six week bonus every year or that you, you know, you would actually get 60 calendar days leave or whatever, even though they may have done that and honored it throughout the first three years of your your employment. It's all good and well until something goes wrong. So your verbal contract doesn't really mean a great deal because you're not going to be able to substantiate any of that once, you know, once the the lawyers get involved in it all. Well, and the, the flip side of it as well is that it's not just the boat's responsibility to you. It's also your responsibility to the boat. Yeah, you know, very much what so. you are saying, I will I will be there from, you know, this time to this time. I accept these are my duties. You need to be clear what you are. I mean, I prefer the boat as well. They need the contract to make sure that the person yep. they're getting in is signing up to do the job they need. Yeah, it needs the contract. Our contracts should always be balanced. They should never favor one side or another. And, you know, it's important to remember, we've mentioned this in previous discussions, that the employee also has responsibilities and obligations in the con- in that contract. And it's up to you to make sure that you that you fulfill them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a, a couple of a, a couple of things just for people to be a little bit, a bit aware about in terms of contracts, things to look out for. Be aware of the jurisdiction of the contract. Um, you know, if, if, the, if your jurisdiction's under, say, English law, for example, then in most but not all cases, um, it's, it's going to be 
relatively easy to deal with. Um, another thing to watch out for in contracts is the way that leave entitlement is calculated. Uh, there's a lot of boats out there that give crew members 30 calendar days leave, which, you know, given how hard a lot of them work, I think is is fairly unreasonable. So I would pay particular attention, you know, especially if they're working, you know, most weekends of the year as well. I was going to say um, 30 days leave. Does that mean, I mean... It, 30, I, I, 30 calendar days. 30 calendar yeah, days. 30 calendar days. Not that working is days. presuming if I've just done four weeks on board and I've worked seven days a week. Yep. Um, am I entitled to get those weekends back added on to my leave? It's, um, it's It seems that's not the case. Um, that's why I'm saying be very careful about the way that leave is calculated in your contract, because, you know, when, when you look at the, you know, the average hours that a lot of yacht crew work and, you know, weekends, public holidays, whatever, um, it, it's to get to get only 30 days calendar leave for a lot of yacht crew is um, is a bit on the unreasonable side, I think. So it's just something to be, so be aware of. Another, another thing ballpark, also, what would be, you know, if, if you've done three months sort of full-on season you really have only had a handful of days um what what is a bit more reasonable to look for in calendar days uh, well, because you can be working seven days a week which is different yeah, to exactly. the average job that's something that you really have to if you're a captain negotiate with your employer directly or if you're a crew member try and negotiate some kind of leeway with the captain on it um, because it's it's a difficult situation a lot of employers will just to default what laws say or regulation says uh, MLC says 2.5 days per month just as if you were in a normal shore-based job which is but that's you know, including weekends people. Yeah, it's in many cases, it's, it's you know, I think it's, it's very unreasonable given how hard a and lot of crew... If you're on a charter work. boat, a busy charter boat, they'll do the season here in the Med. Then in September, October, they'll go straight across and start doing the Caribbean season. Um, yep. And we, Well, that's what I'm thinking. Like the average person in the average five-day-a-week job is still going to get eight days in that month because yep. they have yep. weekend days. And then, you know, you bank holidays thrown in. Yep. I mean, just, just as, as an example, I've I've never signed a contract that I've been handed by an employer. I've looked at them, I've gone through it with a fine-tooth comb, and I've said, no, that's not reasonable, that's not reasonable, that's not reasonable. And, you know, in most cases, it's all ended up, you know, I've negotiated a, a you know, a much more reasonable contract that's applicable to what you're, what you're bringing to the, to the whole operation. It is harder for crew to do, though, because they don't have that, you know, direct clout to negotiate with an employer. So it's something that, you know, some captains will just be uh, you know a little bit more amenable to you know informal days off here and there but it still doesn't constitute proper leave away from the boat uh public holidays is another thing um you, you know it, look at what what states public holidays a boat is likely to give you and you know do you get time off in lieu of those public holidays which is you know a fairly common thing to what do. about religious holidays is there much consideration for a person's religion and adherence to that um, never been an issue for me, and it's never come up as an issue with anyone I've ever I've ever dealt with. Is hire a godless crew? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's that's one way. Um, another another thing I'd like to mention, and this is this is aimed 
predominantly a captain's, but not only, because all crew members should do this as well. There exists a document called the Merchant Navy Code of Conduct, and I have for many, many years incorporated that entire document as an annex to an employment contract. Because what the Merchant Navy Code of Conduct does, first of all, it's approved by Nautilus, the UK Chamber of Shipping and the RMT Union. What it does is it sets out all the, amongst other things, proper procedures that should be followed relating to all disciplinary matters on board. So if your captain and your crew member read that and understand it before they even get involved in joining their next ship, then they will know exactly what they should expect to happen in terms of the way that well-organized disciplinary procedures go. And it will explain, you know, the, the, the whole issue of summary dismissal, what what constitutes summary dismissal. As we all know, lots of people get fired on yachts for things that are, in many cases, entirely unlawful reasons, but it happens all the same. So for example, I would urge... Oh, because the stewardess is more attractive than the boss's oh, wife okay. and the boss doesn't like that. Gotcha. You know, or, or the, the boss's or, wife you know, doesn't like it. Or the yacht manager just doesn't like you even though you're the best employee on board and they just, whatever, you know, it happens all the time. Um, but, you know, being forewarned, beforearmed is, is good with a lot of these things. So um, I would urge everybody to read that document thoroughly because, again, it's a two-way thing. It explains, you know, the, how their behavior on board should be, the crew member. But the most important thing about it is it gives you extremely good guidance on what should happen in any kind of disciplinary situation and depending on what flag you're on if you're on you know shall we say one of the more civilized flags a red ensign whatever then that is an extremely good document to have knowledge of because you will know straight away if you've been dismissed in a way that does not conform to what is laid down in the merchant navy code of conduct okay Okay. now it may not specifically apply to your flag but as so much of what happens in yachting, you know, comes from the UK jurisdiction and still approximately 70% of the world's yachts fly red ends in some format or other. Okay. So that's an extremely good um, document to have, a, you know, a reasonable, a reasonable working knowledge of. Okay. okay. Um, I, I, can you get them to equally sign it out of interest? I mean, you said you added on as... It, it becomes a constituent part of the of the employment contract. Okay, so the, therefore, I just, it, 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 including it into contract. your contract, it doesn't yep. necess- They don't necessarily right. need to co-sign it eight times, no. but it is included in your contract. So if there is some, or can I can I presume if there's some sexual inappropriateness or something that is um, not comfortable for you you have it included and so if you do then have to go back to Nautilus and say I've had this issue and I included this in my contract it just gives you a bit more of a kudos yeah well what what I do is I append it to the to the contract and when you sign the contract you are both parties very importantly, both parties are agreeing to abide by the Merchant Navy Code of Conduct. That means if I have an issue with a, a crew member that requires any kind of disciplinary action other than, you know, a, a quick chat over a coffee, mm-hmm. I as the master will conduct those disciplinary proceedings exactly as they are laid out in the Merchant Navy Code of Conduct. Right. And you, the crew member, will also agree to, you know, abide to behave according to 
what is what is discussed in the Merchant Navy Code of Conduct. Out of interest, just bringing our topic from last week, which was the MAIB, does in the um, Code of Conduct, do they have anything about incidences on board? Is that in, 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 in terms of what? There are more accidents. In, in, if there was an incident on board and they're looking at who's responsible or who was in charge at that time, is that involved at all in the code of conduct? No, it's it, no. It, it's literally about you know behaviour on board and disciplinary okay. disciplinary procedures is the, is the kind of the thrust of it. So again, you know, all crew members should be very familiar with that document. Um, and as I say, it, of course, it doesn't always apply. Um, it you know it, it was based for UK ships, but because so many yachts are registered on the British registries as well, a lot of them will be run in a you know in a in a civilized and professional manner, and that will be a document that employers and captains should be going to for guidance if they want a clear and approved way, approved by um, you know I said by Nautilus, by Chamber Shipping, and by RMT, another union. Um, so you know everybody knows where the goalposts are if you operate according to that code of conduct. So it's it's a really simple way to keep things um, in a, in a format that has been tried and tested and approved by various you know pertinent organisations. So get familiar with that document, and you it, it it really is very very worth reading because you'll 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 understand a lot more about the about the disciplinary process. Um, one I've got one other thing I'd like to mention before we get into a sort of list of top tips. Um, again, lots of lots of garbage written out there on social media and people you know shouting that the, the minute that a yacht owes you some money, you must you must arrest the boat. Well, or chain the boat, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me let me tell you from personal experience, and I'm sure a lot of people will be aware of this as well. In most cases, arresting a boat is quite a complex process um, up to being a very complex process it's a very serious undertaking and it can cost you personally a substantial amount of money if it goes wrong yeah. um, i saw you posted the thing earlier today about you know the equanimity thing um it's it, it, it just is a soap opera that in, all, that in almost all circumstances once you arrest the boat you become responsible for it Mm. Oh, Therefore, so you, was, that that's what that's why equanimity's run up a you know a substantial bill. So if it's arrested for say a month, and the cost of that boat for that month is a million euros, and it goes horribly wrong for you, you could be liable for the potentially cost. you're liable for. Now, obviously, it depends in different jurisdictions again, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but just in general terms, the point I'm trying to make is you can't just go along and arrest the boat. It's not a simple process in most circumstances in most countries and you are potentially opening yourself up to significant exposure to risk and financial disaster if you try to do this and it's not and it's not fully justified and again you obviously need to be approaching competent lawyers that are competent in the in the jurisdiction as well that's but, you know, there's so much nonsense that you read about, oh, just get the boat arrested. It is not that well, simple. It, it really it's is. It's not just um, through social media, because I remember in France, um, and the amount of people that you talk to that did a job on a boat, and the boat was refusing to pay them. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and the advice that would be dallied about you know, in the bar 
was, oh, go go to the Duong and yeah. get the boat arrested. You know, if it's over 7,000 euros, then it's worth your while. And yeah. none, of them, none of them ever said, well, you know what, if the boat had a good reason not to pay you, you could be liable for blah. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Um, look, I say, I'm, I, you know, the, I'm talking very generally here. Of I course. believe there are some jurisdictions and some circumstances. Um, you know, I, I randomly personally witnessed a boat being um, arrested in um, um, da, 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 STPR down in Palma years and years ago. The Guardia Seville just rocked up and boom, the whole thing was done in five seconds. But I don't know anything about the history behind it. Um, I believe in certain jurisdictions, in certain circumstances, it's not that complicated, but it is not something that you want to enter into without fully understanding what you're getting into, the potential liability that you're bringing on upon yourself. If it all goes horribly um, wrong. When it all goes horribly wrong. Yeah. So just be very, very cautious about that. Do not underestimate how complex it is to, 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 um, to do that. And you should always try and seek some, you know, other form of resolution first, if that's, if that's a possibility, which it, generally is and and for that we go back to the first thing of make sure you have a good lawyer yeah. if you, when, if you, you know, need when, to when, when things something. have gone wrong when things have gone wrong um you need to you know you need to be seeking legal advice. one way of course to do it is to be a member of an organization like nautilus they they can um you know if you're a member they can provide you with legal advice um you know where appropriate to to look at your to look at your circumstances. Yeah, and and they can they can forewarn you that you're 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 not on solid ground here. So yeah, well, that, yeah, you with Nautilus. I mean, you can just you can contact them whenever, and anything that's going on on board, you can just contact. You know, as a member of Nautilus, you can contact them and say, look, this is what's happening. Um, can you advise me as to what I should do? And you're not necessarily going to get an instantaneous response there and then. Um, but, you know, they will get back to you as soon as they can with, you know, with someone who, who's um, competent in advising, you know, whether it be a legal issue or whatever that you're, you're dealing with them or, you know, it might be a maritime issue. Um, uh, you did say uh, earlier on that if we could um, just make sure we got 10 minutes for you to go yep. through a bullet point. We're pretty much yep. at that 10 minute mark. Yeah, no, it, I'm watching, it watching flies the clock. by, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, okay, yeah, I'll just, I'll just rattle through these. First of all, prevention is better than cure in all circumstances. So get a copy of your proposed contract before you join the boat. Read it thoroughly. Query any points that you're unsure about in writing. Check with a competent person if you're still unsure about anything it may be benign maybe you just don't understand it it may be absolutely benign but it may not be so um take proper competent advice if there's anything you're unsure of at that point and then only sign the contract if you're completely happy with it and get them to any changes they make to get them to put it in writing yeah Let's say I'm a, I'm a young uh, I'm a young green crew member. I'm looking at my first contract. Uh, where do I find a competent person to advise me? Do, um, I, go, do it, I go to Nautilus it, or? It, it, well, if you if you're already a member of Nautilus, then yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, if you're other, not, join. Gonna... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, and if you're not, maybe it's a good idea to join Nautilus too. 
Yeah, possibly so. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, contracts. Okay, seafarers contracts are specific, but anyone that's generally familiar with the, you know, the structure of a contract should be able to advise in general terms. But if it's anything specifically relating to seafaring, I would suggest that you know you go to someone who's who's familiar with you know with the, the maritime side maybe, of, of maybe the legal the, world. Maybe the crew agent, if uh, if you're getting the job through an agent, maybe they give advice you, you, you could probably ask you know if you've got a you know a good competent experienced crew agent they will be aware of what a standard sea looks like so if they see considerable deviation from a standard sea then maybe they could point that out and say well you know this is this is quite quite a deviation from what's normal yeah okay. which doesn't necessarily make it bad no, no. But you just needs to be just needs to be checked you need to because it, it has deviated from the standard format yeah um I would say if an employer is not upholding their side of an agreement, don't waste too much time in trying to resolve it. Um, Personal experience has shown the longer it goes on, the worse it gets, the deeper the hole is. If you can't get it resolved fairly quickly, cut your losses and move on, would be my advice. Mm -hmm. Um, Uphold your end of the contract. Yeah, very important. You know, it's balanced. The contract is there to lay out what both parties' responsibilities are, and both parties are expected to live up to their side of the contract as well. Plus, if it goes to litigation, you want to be on solid ground. Exactly. If you're not living yep. up to your side, well, yep. you don't have a great argument. Um, another thing I've come across quite a lot in the past, you know, people have signed up for like a one-year contract. Well, to be honest... The, a contract is really only as as long as the as the termination clause in that contract. Um, if you have a termination clause of thirty days and the employer has reasonable justification to terminate your employment, i.e., the boat's being sold, they're going down to a skeleton crew, whatever, then though you've just signed a one-year contract, it's really only good for the period of the, the termination period on it. Yeah. Um, educate yourself. Read. MGN 447, download a model format SCA from the MCA website and read the Merchant Navy Code of Conduct. And attach that onto your contract too, as you mentioned earlier. As, as an employer. That's that's mm. what I, I've done that for many, many years. As an employer, I've said, right, you know, this is this is part of the contract. Yeah. Okay. It just keeps things really, really simple. As, uh, as, as, as an employee, say if... Um, you know, as your captain, I, I'm I'm looking at a job. You give me my contract, and I come back to you and go, "Okay, I'm happy with the contract. However, I would like to add on to this um, the MNCC as uh, as an annex to this contract." Would you, as a captain, think, "Oh, you're a troublemaker," or would you go, "Okay, that's acceptable"? Well, for that particular thing, it, well, they wouldn't have to because it would be included in any way if it was a contract I was writing. Yeah, but, but because, not, it uh, makes, because it makes perfect yeah, sense uh, to have it there. But say a, a, a non Ian Flockhart captain, a captain that wouldn't have it in normally. I think a lot of employers and a lot of management companies issue very, very Spartan and simple, straightforward contracts that are. You know, as I say, the ones I've seen, you know, I'm not impressed with them at all. But that seems to be very standard within the industry. Um, if you've got somebody that you think's worth employing, and they're asking, um, you know, even before you hire them, um, you know, for some something extra in their contract, 
if you feel it's justifiable, then it can be it can be incorporated into the contract. Yeah, or again, if you clarify a, your reasons, just you know, I, I think this don't is be afraid uh, to ask. This is a good thing for us all to include. You know, this is my, you know, I've been giving good advice, and this is what I feel is, is yep. you know, helpful to both of us to make sure that conduct is yep. carried out as should be. Um, okay, carrying on. Be cautious of flags of convenience. They exist for a reason. Okay. Um, multiple jurisdictions. We kind of discussed that. You know, my nightmare scenario where you've got you know four possible jurisdictions there. Um, uh, just back to the Merchant Navy Code of Conduct a bit. Read the bit specifically about what justifies um, summary dismissal, because a lot of yacht crew are summarily dismissed where it is entirely unlawful. Not an easy thing to deal with on yachts, but it does happen. And all I'm saying is at least be aware of what constitutes summary dismissal. Okay. Okay. Um, one from one from personal experience here. If you're already employed on a vessel and the employer wants you to move you to another vessel within their fleet or family or whatever, make sure that your existing well, either of the following. Make sure that your existing co- contract covers that eventuality, or make sure the contract is amended to reflect the move to a new vessel including the name of the vessel. And if the vessel has changed, it's entirely possible that the employer has changed as well. Make sure all of this is reflected or get a completely new contract written to reflect a new change is the name of the new vessel. And or if the employer is new, even if you're working for the same owner or the same family, the boat might be owned by an entirely different entity. And if you end up with a dispute at the end of it, you're going to be on very thin ice because you actually have no proof that you were working for that that particular vessel per- employer. Vessel. Yeah. Okay. Um, and don't allow changes like this to happen on a handshake from the owner or the representative. Okay? I, I think, unfortunately, in this in our somewhat more litigious society, um, a handshake is really no longer sufficient. No, um, it's not. Um, because you know say all of this stuff's fine until it goes wrong. oh but i've worked with him for five years yeah well you know maybe all of a sudden they don't have as much money as they used to yeah and your personal bitter experience from me in that in that situation um a couple more just again we've said this but seek competent and relevant i.e through jurisdiction legal advice at an early stage if you feel it's necessary and finally just don't work on a boat without a written contract yeah, bottom line. Yeah, that's it. Just it's the, the, there are so many potential risks to you, and it also tells you something off the bat about the person you're about to go and work for. If they don't have their act together enough to be organised enough to have you a proper contract of employment in place before you you come to join the vessel, you really should be looking elsewhere. Well, and you know they obviously uh, equally you have this massively expensive asset, you want to make sure that the people on board minding it and taking care of it are people you can trust. You know, as you said in the start, it goes both ways. So it's not just for your own protection. It's, you know, it should go both ways. It should be setting massive alarm bells ringing if, you know, an an organisation that has, you know, a substantial amount of money behind it can't even get their act together enough to to prepare you a proper contract of employment in advance of that you should be worried 
Well, a lot to absorb there. I think we're going to have to put up a new page on our website for links to all these documents. <laughs> we'll talk to you about that later. No, I kid you not. True advice. You've been listening to well, it. Uh, I'm working on that already. <laughs> well, I, I think we, we need it as space. well. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ian. Thank it you. was super to get your um, knowledge and wisdom on this. You're very welcome. And we will catch you again. Captain Ian Flockhart, uh, many thanks, and we'll talk to you soon. You're listening to okay. Super Yacht Radio. Thank you. Top of the hour, time for the news.